through uh, the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus 17. Uh, This morning we will look just at verses 8 through 16. I know that I have given you uh, reprieves lately because we've, you know, when you read Old Testament narratives, a lot of times it's a long chunk. Uh, This is a short chunk. So, if you're able, uh, please stand as we read God's Word together. Exodus chapter uh, 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation the grass withers the flowers fade but the word of the lord stands forever let's pray Uh, would you O holy spirit be at work teach us grow us uh, conform us more and more into the image of christ for we ask it in his name amen you may be seated uh i'm i'm assuming you've heard the phrase you've heard the statement let go and let god um and and I get it. I mean, generally, what we mean by that is a good thing. Um, generally, when we say that, what we what we typically mean is that we need to quit trying trying to control everything and realize that we aren't him, and that he is sovereign and we aren't. That we don't always know what's best. That we don't always know what's right. That he's working his sovereign will. He's not working my sovereign will. And so when we say let go and let God, we typically mean that um, we shouldn't worry, that we should take everything to God in prayer, that we should let him um, recognize that he alone is sovereign. However, it seems to be missing something. The phrase let go and let God seems to be implying something that quite honestly is contrary to what Scripture teaches us. You could go so far as to say, well, let go and let God means I don't have to do anything. And if I just sit here on my couch and I never read my Bible and I never pray and I never tell anybody about Jesus, well, that's okay because God is sovereign and He's going to do what He's supposed to do and, and I can just sit here and do nothing. I can let go and just let God it's a statement that has, we mean well, and, and that's fine and good, but it, it has the danger of saying more than we mean to say. It, 
can teach us that we don't participate in anything at all, ever. As long as we just let go and let God. The problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible does absolutely teach us that God is sovereign, that God is in control of everything from the scary, dangerous tornadoes that that we're told about from time to time, and I hate them, to, to salvation of the lost. We know that God is sovereign over all of those things, and He's absolutely in control. He determines the events. He orchestrates things according to His sovereign means. Which means that He's also determined not just the end, but the means. Why else have you and I been commanded to evangelize? To make disciples of all nations? Is God sovereign? Yes. Could He absolutely call people to saving faith in Christ without us? Yes. Is that how He does it? Apparently not. Because He's told us to participate. He's told us to engage. Not only has He determined the ends, but He's also determined the means by which His will will be carried out. And we actually get to see that in this passage. We left the Israelites encamped at Rephidim, uh, this oasis in the desert. Uh, It appears the Amalekites are there. Um, they show up out of nowhere in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so I hope that you immediately go, well, hold on a second. I got questions. I mean, you get two words into verse 8 and you're already going, who are these people? Where do they come from? And why are they bothering to fight with Israel? So let's ask those questions real quick. What what exactly are the Amalekites doing in this passage? Well, I mean, we're told in verse 8, they came and fought with Israel. But this actually gets clarified for us. Turn with me. By the way, you do not want to put your Bible away. You're going to need it. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Here in Exodus 17, all we're told is that they're fighting with Israel. But in Deuteronomy 25, we actually get a... A reminder, uh, Moses reminds the people of Israel what was going on back here in Exodus 17. So in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? Aye, that's where we are. That's Exodus 17. This sounds familiar. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So here we are years later, I mean, almost 40 years later, 30 something years later. And Moses is reminding them, hey, don't forget what the Amalekites did to you back when we left Egypt. It seems they were attacking the tired, the lame, the weak, the old the people who were straggling behind as Israel is making its march towards the promised land or at least out and away from Egypt and to Rephidim, it seems that they're sort of attacking the rear of the caravan where you've got the the young with the short steps and the old with the short, slow steps and the tired with the short, slow steps and the weak and the people who are sort of dropping off behind. 
And so Amalek is attacking Israel, which honestly sounds pretty cowardly the way they're doing it. I, mean, I, I guess it's smart enough, but they're still going to have to face the strong, fightable people sooner or later. But in fact, in Deuteronomy 25, Moses writes this not just to remind them, but to actually encourage them. To remind them, look, when you get into the promised land and you face the Amalekites again, destroy them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Remember what they did to you. It's an encouragement to go and to fight, to blot them out of the history books when they get into Canaan. By the way, they don't. Um, David is still dealing with them in 1 Samuel. So they... They're going to be this sort of constant um, conflict with the Israelites. So what are they doing? They're fighting with Israel. They seem to be attacking from the rear guard. Who are they? Who is Amalek? Who is this, this person? Who are the Amalekites that show up out of nowhere? Well, I'm sure you remember. Because we actually did this when we preached through Genesis. About four years ago? Five years ago? I should have looked. Um, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 36. Because we know exactly who the Amalekites are. In Genesis 36, we get this list of Esau's descendants. You know Esau. Jacob's brother. Lost his birthright. Uh, tricked out of his birthright by Jacob. Blessed by Isaac, their father. Um, received the blessing of that firstborn son. And all the benefits that come with it. Well, this is his brother Esau. Look at verse 12 in chapter 36. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. In other words, Amalek is Esau's grandson through his son's concubine. So this is a descendant of Esau. These are distant relatives. So the Amalekites are actually attacking their, their, their kinfolk. I mean, at this point, it's pretty distant cousins. But they're still related back through their great, 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 however many great grandfather. Because, by the way, we're... We're hundreds of years later, right? I mean, if they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, it's been 400 years plus the, the few months it's been since they left Egypt plus the gap between Esau and getting into Egypt. So why then? Why are the Amalekites? Well, maybe it's just as simple as they wanted water. Maybe it's as simple as they didn't want the Israelites treading on their oasis and, and feeding, you know, drinking, taking the water, taking up their land, taking up their space. Or maybe it's something more than that. Because what we find is, to quote the great theologian Hank Williams Jr., all they're doing is carrying, an old, carrying on an old family tradition. Turn back to Genesis chapter 27. Look at 
In Genesis 27, we're, we're actually given an explanation of why the Amalekites would bother attacking the Israelites. Genesis 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of, my, of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, the Amalekites are only trying to do what their great, 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 however many greats, grandfather failed to do. It's, it's the age-old conflict that doesn't go back to Jacob and Esau. It goes back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The offspring of the serpent wants more than anything in the world, the destruction of the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent wants more than anything in the world to prevent that Redeemer from being born. Now, they may not know it. They don't realize that that's what they're doing. But it's this conflict. It's this age-old battle between the two kinds of people in the world. you either in the household of God or you're not. And if you're not... You are against it. We saw this with Pharaoh in Egypt. We see this now with the Amalekites. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, God told their mom, by the way, the older is going to serve the younger. The younger is the chosen seed. The, The line of promise is through Jacob. It's not through Esau, even though they're twins and even though he's born technically right before Jacob. The promise isn't coming through Esau. In fact, we, we read there in Genesis 25, we read in Romans also, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. And so Esau and now his descendants are fighting that conflict still. The seed of the serpent wants the destruction of God's people. You do realize we have enemies, right? You you have three enemies. You know them. You've heard them. You have three enemies who are dead set on the destruction of the church, who are dead set on the destruction of God's people, who are dead set against you. Our wars aren't with countries. They're not with nations. They're not with individuals. They're not with people. Our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The philosophies and and worldviews of the world in which we live. The, The old sin nature that's still inside of us that so often, far too often, rears its ugly head and and wants our destruction. And the devil himself, who still, though knowing his doom is sure, wants to destroy the church. In fact, let me give you a glimpse of this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, we get a a little picture of uh, what this battle looks like. You'll know this passage, I'm sure. It'll be familiar to most of you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. And already you should be going, wait, why do I need armor? You don't need to put on armor unless you're in a battle. So if I'm supposed to put on armor, that implies already there's got to be something, someone, something, somewhere to fight. So we are in a battle. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to talk about the armor that we need. We're in a battle. We, we, we're at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's the, the context, the setting we find in Exodus 17. God's people are under attack from the enemies of God's people. But this, this battle ends up different from anything we've seen so far in Exodus. Just because I, I'm, I'm so confident you remember all of this with perfect clarity. But just think back through everything we've seen in the book of Exodus. Think back through the, the events of delivering Israel from Egypt. There were these plagues that Israel did absolutely nothing to make happen. There was this Red Sea that stood between them and, and freedom, deliverance from the Egyptian army that was closing in on them. And the Israelites did absolutely nothing to get through that sea. And then once they got on the other side, the Egyptians said, hey, sweet, the sea parted and, and the land is dry. Let's go. Chariots, horses, footmen, we got them. Let's go get them. And then the sea collapsed back on the Egyptian army. And the Israelites did absolutely nothing to make that happen. Everything we've seen so far, God has been absolutely at work. And the Israelites have only had to sit and watch. The only person who's had anything to do with anything at all has been Moses with this staff that he holds up. This time, the Amalekites attack, the enemy attacks, and Moses says, hey, Joshua, get some men. Go fight them. Go do something about this. So far, every single time, God has unilaterally solved the problem. And this time, the Israelites actually engage in the fight. They actually participate, participate in the fight. Moses says to Joshua, grab some men, go out and fight them. You're going to go to battle, and I'm going to go up on this hill, and we are going to fight with the Amalekites. Joshua's name means salvation belongs to the Lord, or the Lord Saves. It's basically the same name that Jesus has given. It means that that salvation is God's, that the Lord says and, and saves. And that ought to tell you something about Joshua's parents. That you would name your child the Lord saves communicates that you're looking for the Savior to come and redeem God's people. 
So you, you know something of, of Joshua's past just by looking at his name. He's raised in a household looking for the Redeemer. In fact, you can sort of see glimpses of that uh, throughout um, other parts of the Old Testament. And so Joshua goes out and takes his men out to fight with the Amalekites. This time they don't let go and let God. They, they let God and they fight. In fact, notice verse 13. Verse 13 strikes me as odd. There's, a, there's something there in verse 13 that I think sounds, if, if I'm reading this for the first time, that I think doesn't quite make sense. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Okay, first of all, who's Joshua? He just showed up on the scene in this passage. Moses is up on the hill and, and okay, to give away what's going on. He's up there praying and God is absolutely at work. And as Moses is praying, the Israelites are winning. And as he kind of loses his hands, loses his strength, the Israelites start to lose. And, and yet Joshua is given the credit for the victory. Not the army, not Moses, not God, not God's people. Joshua. Moses writing Exodus records for us Joshua was given victory. It's almost like God is already setting Joshua up to be the next leader of Israel. It's almost like that sentence is communicating to Israel and to the audience, oh, by the way, this is the guy who takes over leading God's people into the promised land for Moses, who takes over for Moses. So Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves, gets the credit for defeating the Amalekites. You and I are called to wage war against our enemies. You and I are called to participate in the battle, to engage in the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We actually enter into the battle. Does God fight? Absolutely. Has He already? Absolutely. But does that mean we sit back and do nothing? Absolutely not. It just so happens that in the Christian life, He has given us means by which we grow, by which we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's given us the means of grace. He's given us the Word, which is the sword that fights against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's given us the Word, sacraments, and prayer. And we use those weapons for our own spiritual growth to stomp down the, the old, sinful, fleshly nature inside of us to battle against the world and the devil. And yet, the fight isn't ours. Look at verses 10 to 12. Joshua did as Moses told him, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the hill. And, and you know the story. When Moses' hands were up, Israel prevailed. His hands lowered. Amalek prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur said, hang on, we got you. They grabbed a stone, gave him a place to sit, and they helped hold his hands up so that Israel could win the battle. Um, 
it would be easy to 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 think of Moses um, up on the hill, sort of like Azog the destroyer, Azog the defiler, um, up on Raven Hill in the Battle of the Five Armies. Uh, the third, if you've seen the Hobbit movies, uh, it doesn't work this way in the book. Um, and this is one of those places where the, the movie seems to add some things as they so often do. Uh, but if you've seen the Hobbit movie, the Hobbit trilogies that Peter Jackson did, in the last one, the Battle of the Five Armies, that big, ugly white orc that's sitting up on top of the hill with this big, giant bird sort of banner sort of thing. And it does, and he's got this big, giant alpen horn, and he blows the horn, and, and it tells the, the people down at the bottom what to do. And he's sending signals to his army down in this battle. There's, there's the danger of thinking, well, Moses is just up there holding up his hands and pointing and giving instructions to the Israelites. And, and as long as his hands are doing this and in this sort of formation, this way, this, if he moves his hands and says things and calls out commands, then the Israelites know what they're doing. He's kind of watching and can orchestrate the battle. Hey, wait, there's some guys coming from your right. And so you got to... That's not what Moses is doing at all. Moses, hands up in the air, is a common Old Testament um, posture for prayer. Moses is lifting his hands not to give instructions to Israel, but to beg for God to be at work in the fight below. He's praying that God would fight, that God would push back the Amalekites, that God would, would fight against the enemies on behalf of God's redeemed people. His arms grew tired. He starts to drop. Aaron and her sort of gather around him and give him a place to sit. They hold up his arms and, and help him in his battle, in his prayer. But I want you to notice what might be the key phrase in all of this. Look at the end of verse 9. Moses goes on, on top of the hill, but he doesn't go empty-handed. He takes the staff. The staff of God. Now, you have to imagine that when Joshua saw Moses grab that staff to head up the hill, that the Israelites in that moment went, I don't think we can lose. See, you see, that's the staff that caused the, the Nile to turn to blood. That's the staff that brought plagues. That's the staff that parted the Red Sea. That's the staff that made it go back. That's the, the mace, the scepter, the banner, the, the sight of, the, the picture of God's presence with His people and His power to make His will come about. Moses isn't just with hands up. He's holding up this staff, this staff of God's power and rule and reign, lifting the rod of the Lord, praying that God would contend for his people against their enemies. In other words, this passage really is a picture that we fight and we pray. We fight, we use the means to do battle against our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we pray and we beg that God would do battle against our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil.
But notice something else. Moses isn't alone. He has two men with him. He has Aaron and her with him. He has helpers. He has people there who will hold up his arms, his arms when they grow weak. They've sort of gathered around to encourage him as he is praying, to pray with him and to participate with him. You need to understand you are absolutely engaged in a battle, but you are not engaged in the battle that you can fight alone. And you're not engaged in a battle that you're supposed to fight alone. It's a battle that you cannot fight on your own and that you must not fight on your own and that you do not fight on your own. That's the nature of the church. That's why we sing, am I a soldier of the cross? And yet, at the same time, point ourselves back to the fact that Christ is the ultimate victor. The church is a a hospital for the hurting where um, we come and we have our wounds cleansed and and bandaged, our armor reinforced, our battle plan sort of re-engaged, our courage strengthened, and we're reminded all over again that we don't fight this fight alone. Yes, we're in a battle. Yes, we have weapons of war. Yes, we're wearing armor. But the battle belongs to the Lord and we have help from each other. But I want you to notice another encouragement. Look at, the, look at verses 14 to 16. Now, you need to understand, when God tells his people, when he tells a prophet, when he tells Moses, when he tells, look, write this down. Moses, get your pen, get your paper. You do realize it wasn't actually a pen. It wasn't that get your pen, get your paper, and I need you to write this down. And then not only that, but I need you to make sure that Joshua hears this. You're going to write it and you're going to read it and you're going to read it in the ears of Joshua. Now, I realize that that's a phrase that means, you know, in Joshua's presence, so he hears it. But you kind of almost want, not a whisper, but, hey, Joshua, like, like he, like almost Moses walks up to Joshua's, you know, ear and literally goes, Joshua, you need to hear this. Make sure I have your attention. What is it that God wants Moses to write and Joshua to hear? I will utterly blot out, not Amalek, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You need to learn some Hebrew. Every now and then, I just feel like you need to learn some Hebrew or some Greek. You know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Um, They don't have a word for utterly. You're reading through the Bible and, and you read, we do this all, we, I will utterly destroy, I will utterly blot out. They don't have that. They use the same verb twice. Same root, two different tenses. So blotting, I will blot out. Which sounds just really cool to me. But it's this notion that he will completely remove the Amalekites from under heaven. Um, can you find them on your map? Pull up Google Maps real quick. Everybody, you, got, you have phones. Pull up Google Maps and get directions to Amala, Amalek. Amaleki. Amalek. I don't know. Where do they live? You can't. Why not? Because they finally have been removed from under heaven. Okay, it's going to take centuries. David's still dealing with them. 
in First Samuel, but they are gone now. Here's the comfort we have. That's the end that our enemies expect also. There will come a day when the world, the flesh, and the devil, the memory of them will be blottingly blotted out from under heaven. Why? Why do we have that promise? Why can we be so sure that the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to be destroyed, completely erased in the new creation? Well, because Christ is our banner. Because Christ is the one who has fought the world, the flesh, and the devil and has issued that decisive blow that sort of relegates them to utter destruction when He returns. They don't stand a chance. Okay, they might, from time to time, just like the Amalekites, cause trouble. But they can't win. Our hope, our sure and certain promise, our anticipation, our longing is that there is a world in which the world, the flesh, and the devil don't exist. You can't pull them up on Google Maps and say, I need directions, just like you can't to Amalek. Christ is the banner. Christ is the the standard around which we rally, around which the church gathers today. The one who's been raised up to give hope and encouragement to his people. Will you look to him as your banner? Will you look to him and gather around him and be encouraged to remain engaged in the fight? The fight that you can't lose. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope and promise and certainty that there is a world in which the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, are no more. In which the enemies of uh, your enemies and the enemies of your people are completely eradicated from even our memory. Father, would you grant us the grace? Uh, Would that truth, would that reality, would that expectation be enough to encourage us as we engage in this fight? May it be that we use the means that you've given us and at the same time depend on you to deliver us. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.